And I shared with first service because I didn't know what Brad was going to share. Uh, I always love to hear Brad. Um, but I, I thought it was pretty cool, just God's timing. And I wrote it down second service because I knew you were going to say it, Brad. Um, but Brad said, I have, I'm quoting Brad Reardon here in a sermon. I have known the shepherding presence of God like never before. And that's actually what we're talking about today. So, so even when Brad said that, I, I mean, I was paying attention, I was listening for it, but when he said it, maybe something in you is like, I want to know the shepherding presence of God like that. What's this guy talking? I want to know what he's talking about. Well, we're going to talk about that today. So perfect timing in the Lord. And I had been reading, many of you know of J.R.R. Tolkien and his book, The Lord of the Rings, or his series of books, I guess. I was reading that he often employed a storytelling device he called eucatastrophe. A catastrophe is obviously an unexpected evil, but Tolkien added the Greek prefix eu, 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 meaning good, to express the unexpected appearing of goodness. He defined it as the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings you to tears. It has this effect on us because it is a sudden glimpse of truth in which we feel a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly been snapped back into place. Repeatedly in his stories, the eucatastrophe occurs just as all hope appears to be lost. So if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, it's the moment the eagles swoop in for the rescue or the riders of Roham arrive at the battle, or Gandalf the White appears with the breaking of the day. And we are in Easter tide, Easter season, so to use Tolkien's language this morning, the coming of Jesus Christ was a eucatastrophe. He is the light that gives us a sudden glimpse of truth, our humanly devised ways of relating to God that never seem to satisfy are, are revealed to be out of joint. But in Christ Jesus, things suddenly snap back into place. And there's relief and peace and joy and hope. So I'm going to invite you this morning. It's a pretty basic invitation, but I'm going to invite you to personally ask God for your own eucatastrophe this week. <laughs> your own moments. And I'll share, we'll go through the text and I'll share some of my own moments this week. But your own moments where there's an unexpected, sudden appearing of goodness. And you could say, maybe with Brad, I've never known the shepherding presence of God like this before. That's the invitation this morning. Now, we're going to be in John chapter 10. We are working our way through the church calendar. We don't normally do this, but we're doing it this year. I'm trying to teach the church calendar as a discipleship tool, which I've talked about other weeks. What I want to say this morning with the, what you see in our graphic, the point of doing this is because we want to keep Jesus at the center of everything. Uh, we want to keep Jesus in the center of how we live and how we think and how we arrange our time, how we think about our days, our weeks, our months, how we think about the year. Again, we are so formed in modern day Babylon to think, oh, this is the time that I consume this. And this is the time that I buy this. No, no, no. We want to think about everything in light of Jesus. We are Christians way before we are ever consumers, right? So we're going to keep Jesus in the center of everything. And we want to read, we're in the Gospel of John, really. We're going through the Book of Common Prayer because I'm just following it. The church has followed it for many, many centuries and um, and it follows the church calendar and the life of Jesus. And, we've, and we primarily, we're in year C 
If you're following along, there's three years, so we're in year C, and we've primarily been in Luke's gospel and John's gospel. We're going to be in John's gospel again today, and one of the things that I think John does uniquely, John writes his gospel differently. We've talked about this. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see Matthew, Mark, Luke feel similar. John feels different. I've given some reasons for that as we've gone through this. I think John is aware at least of Mark's gospel, if not also Matthew and Luke, but definitely Mark's. And he's writing something that both complements but is different. He's telling a little bit more of the story. And, and many scholars think John is writing his gospel for us to read through the lens of the resurrection. So if you're new to Christianity, if you've never read the gospel before, I always recommend starting the book of John, read through John, get to know Jesus. You'll get to the end, you'll hear the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection and what it means. But then don't be done with John, read it again. Go back and read John through the lens of the resurrection. You'll see things you didn't see the first time through. I mean, John begins his gospel so much differently. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the divine logos. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you're already like, whoa, what, what am I reading? What is this about? And as you read through John's gospel, you'll even find a phrase like this. The disciples didn't understand this until after the resurrection. So John is writing his gospel in a way that we read it and understand it in light of the resurrection. And so we're in Eastertide. The text this week, I think most, I mean almost every year maybe, has to do with Jesus being the good shepherd. We're in John chapter 10. And I want us to read it in light of the resurrection. I want us to hear as Jesus talks about this life, this eternal life that he gives. I want us to to hear that that you and I can step into this resurrection life as well, this, this good life, the life of God, a life made livable once again, an abundant life, a life that overflows. That's what Jesus is offering to us, and it's available to us through his resurrection. So if you want to pick up your Bibles or follow along, we'll be in John 10, We're going to start in 22 because that's our text for the morning, but if you're unfamiliar with this, I I recommend either while I'm preaching, if you want to skim or if you want to go home later today and read, read John 10, 1 to 21. It's where we get introduced to the metaphor of Jesus as the good shepherd, and there's, I'll reference some of it, but it's so rich. It's worth reading and sitting and thinking about a little bit. But our text is 22 to 30. John 10, 22, it was now winter and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. We'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. This was a part of the temple, kind of blocked off from the wind. I think that's why he's mentioning it's winter, it's cold. I think John is also mentioning it because the early church, if you read, if you continue to read through the book of Acts, the early church, Solomon's, Columet, Solomon's porch was important. They often met there. They gathered there. They, they worshiped Jesus, learned about Jesus together in this space. And so John's just reminding them of when Jesus was walking there. And the people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? They want to know. Are you the Messiah or not? Tell us plainly. Stop with all the parables. (laughs) Just tell us straight up. And our primary focus will be these verses. They're beautiful verses. Jesus replied, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep, what do they do? Well, they, they listen to my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. That's what it means to be a sheep of Jesus' flock. Doesn't that sound good? You listen to his voice, and you know him. 
And then you follow him into life, overflowing, abundant life. That's what Jesus says next. I give them, I give the sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, never, ever perish. And then he begins to give us this pretty cool image that we'll we'll come back to. No one can snatch them away from me. And in fact, my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else, and no one can snatch them from the Father's hands. The Father has good grip, is what we'll say. And then we get this pretty deep theological statement. Jesus says it rather quickly. We'll talk about this a little bit too. The Father and I are one. So that might drive any of you English teachers crazy, but that's what Jesus says. First thing I want to talk a little bit about here is verse 25. They want to know, are you the Messiah? And Jesus, well, he hasn't directly said it publicly. Maybe in a few very private conversations in the Gospel of John, he's made it clear. But he hasn't said it publicly. And the people want to know, are you or are you not? They have all kinds of presuppositions or expectations about who the Messiah would be. Jesus is saying pretty cool things and doing incredible things. And he's garnering a following. But they want to know, just be straight with us. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus essentially says, well... I mean, he's really careful because he knows that what they think, and we'll talk a little bit about this as well, what they think the Messiah is going to be is not what he's intending. Here we can at least glean that Jesus believes the Messiah is the Son, who being one with the Father is the giver of eternal life. It's probably even more than what they're looking for. They just want freedom from Roman oppression, but but that's what he says. And I also hear in this, and I'll explain what I mean, but I hear in this for you and me this morning as we talk about eucatastrophes and awakening to the shepherding presence of God, I think Jesus begins with an invitation for you and I to slow down, for you and I to pause, for you and I to think, for you and I to to, to, to step away from all the distractions, to turn the screens off, maybe turn music off from time to time, maybe maybe turn off a few podcasts, maybe turn your phone off and just pause and listen and think. I think Jesus is saying here, look, you're asking me, but if you just paused and thought about the story of God, if you just think about what you know about the scriptures and who God is and what he's doing in the world, if you just then think about that and think about what I've been doing, I think you'll find your answer. But you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to pause. You're going to have to do some thinking. In fact, this is essentially, I mean, I think it's almost a parallel passage with what happens in the Gospel of Matthew with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in prison. He is the forerunner to Jesus. He's been saying, here comes the Messiah. You know, this is the one. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then, and then John the Baptist is in prison. He's like, wait a minute. If Jesus is who I thought he was going to be, why am I in prison? And so he sends someone to Jesus, are you the one we were expecting or should we expect someone else? And Jesus' response is, in essence, to quote Isaiah 61 and say, well, I'm setting the captives free. (laughs) I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee. I'm proclaiming good news to the poor and the downcast and the oppressed. Pay attention to what I'm doing because what I'm doing is what the prophets always said the Messiah would do. You ask the question, it's pretty obvious, if you pause and you think about what I'm up to in the world. Jesus wants us to slow down, to think about what he's doing, 
to pay attention and to be honest about our own presuppositions, our own presuppositions or expectations about what we think he should be doing. We love to tell Jesus what he should be doing, don't we? And he's always challenging us. He's always reframing for us the kingdom of God. Even I think the mention of Hanukkah here is really interesting as I know that story. If you know much about Hanukkah, it's one of the festivals that the Jews celebrate. It's, but it's, it's the one festival, I think, that's not in the Old Testament. It happens in this intertestamental period from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. You got Alexander the Great. He's got this pretty impressive empire. And then it starts to get broken up, I think, into four different areas at, at one point. And at one point, the Jews are, be ru- are ruled by the Seleucid family or, or clan or uh, and there's a guy by the name of Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He's, a, he's, he's not a great leader for the Jews. And he goes into the temple and he erects a temple to, uh, uh, an altar to Zeus, which is total sacrilege, and offends the people. And it stirs up a rebellion. And, and, and three years later, the Jews are led by a guy named Judah, Judah Maccabee, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. And he, and, he, and he leads actually leads the Jewish people into about 100 year, years of independence. He's actually going to start a dynasty that will end with the Romans and Herod the Great. But Hanukkah is, is, is a memory of about three years after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple. And, and Judas Maccabeus, he, he cleanses it and he reconsecrates the temple. And so the Jews remember that at Hanukkah. But even that then sticks in their mind about the kind of Messiah. You know, now, now they don't have the Seleucids, now they have the Romans. We've talked a little bit about some of the things that Pilate did to drive them crazy. And, 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 and so they're, they're expecting a Messiah much like Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. And I always remember when I, when, when I think of that story, Judas' father, Mattathias, is being killed by the oppressors at the time. And I, and I always like to contrast what he cries out in his death and what Jesus cries out at his death on the cross and, and how we even begin to see how Jesus is redefining for us what his kingdom is all about. In 1 Maccabees, we're told that Mattathias, as he's being put to, be- put to death, he, he charges his sons. This is what he says. Avenge the wrong done to your people and pay back the Gentiles in full. And that's what motivates Judas the Hammer. Now think about that in contrast with Jesus on the cross. <laughs> Jesus does not cry out to the Father, avenge my enemies and pay them all back in full. Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And whew, our eyes are open. This is a different kind of kingdom. And this is a different kind of king. Now, the people are frustrated because Jesus won't just say outright he's the Messiah, right? And I love this about Jesus. One scholar said, Jesus is always giving us just enough of himself to make faith possible. And yet he also always hides just enough of himself to make faith necessary. That's true. Jesus does that. It's kind of sneaky like that, if you will. He, he reveals enough of himself that you need to know that makes you want more and more and more. But not all of himself because he's leading us down this journey and we have so much to learn. But for the sake of this morning, what I want to say is if you're going to ask Jesus for a catastrophe, a sudden appearing of goodness, uh, so that you can say, I've never known the shepherding presence of God like I do right now. You're going to need to find space to pause and to think. 
I really do believe that the risen Jesus wants to show himself to you in a way this Easter season that is unique to you, that meets needs of yours, that is good news for you. I even want to ask you if you'd like that. Would you like Jesus to show himself to you in a unique way that blesses you? If so, you need to ask and you need to create space where you can pause and think and reflect on what he's doing. Because if you don't, you'll miss him. You'll miss him. If you've been with us the last three weeks, we've been reading through John 20 and 21. And what happens? Jesus, the risen Jesus, will show up, ironically, in these contemplative spaces, right? A garden and along the shore of a lake. <laughs> but he'll show up in these places, but he, but he fits in so well, if you don't pause to notice, you'll miss him. He shows up as a, I mean, Mary's in the garden, right? And she's distressed, and he shows up, and she first thinks he's the gardener. Until, and I think it's even connected to this passage, until he says her name, and then she says Rabboni, right? Clings to him. Or we talked about last week, the disciples are out fishing, and Jesus, he just looks like a stranger on the shore, maybe another fisherman just calling out. But if they don't pause to, 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 if they don't pause to think, right, the disciple whom Jesus loves, it's the Lord, and Peter jumps in. But, but Jesus kind of just fits in, and so if you don't pause to think, if you, if you don't have space for solitude and, and some silence, if you can't turn off your phone and all the distractions, you're going to miss him. You're going to walk right by. Now, you can't schedule these, but you can ask for them. You can ask Jesus to show himself to you. And, and again, you can't tell, well, Jesus, show up at this time in this place, but, but just ask and just let him, let it be, a, that's why I like, you could tell, let it be a surprise. A sudden appearing. You didn't plan it. You asked. You didn't know when. But stop telling Jesus what to do and when to do it and let him do it on his time. It's better. Remember, we're going to arrange our time around Jesus. We're not going to ask Jesus to arrange his time around us. That's countercultural, but it's healthy for your soul. Well, we'll keep moving. Verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, some of you might not like how this sounds, but this is really how Jesus thinks about things. Verse 26, you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. Jesus draws a distinction between those who trust him, those who have faith in him, and those who don't. There are those who who know him, and those are the ones who, who hear his voice, They know him and they follow him. But those who don't know him, they aren't his sheep. They're a part of some other flock. And we'll talk about that other flock in just a few minutes. But if you're sitting here today or if you're listening online and you're like, I don't know him. I'm probably a part of that other flock. Well, I just want you to know this more. Jesus is inviting you in. (laughs) Jesus is, he's always inviting you into his flock. If you can humble yourself, if you can confess your sin and your need for Jesus, he will welcome you in. If you can acknowledge what Jesus did for you on the cross and his resurrection and his forgiveness of your sins, you can join his flock. He doesn't make it that hard. <laughs> I mean, following him is not easy, but he doesn't make it that hard. We'll talk about that. So there are those who aren't his sheep, and then there are those who are his sheep. Those who listen to his voice. The sheep are those who first and fundamentally hear Jesus and know him and experience him and then walk with him and follow him as, they lead, as he leads. And I was thinking about this. This week I was mowing lawn on Sunday and I was listening to a sermon. I 
I like to listen to sermons while I mow lawn. It was an Easter sermon, and it was, it was getting me excited. And, and the pastor was preaching on something pretty similar, these resurrection appearances of Jesus. And the pastor was just asking the question, do you want to meet with Jesus? He didn't talk about you catastrophes, but do you want to meet with Jesus? And I, and I, and I was yes, that's what I want. And I, I was just mowing lawn, just pretty normal. Just out mowing, and I'm like, Jesus, I want to meet with you this week. I, just, I, want to meet, I really do. I need to meet with you. I want to meet with you. I need you, Jesus. So I was just reflecting on my week. I do think I had at least two you catastrophes this week. Unplanned, sudden appearances of good. Jesus, I heard his voice. His sheep hear his voice. And both, I think, came from people in our church wanting to meet with me because they were trying to hear the voice of Jesus. That's one of the things I want for us at Crossview, to constantly be a place of community gathering together. What does Jesus say? When two or three are gathered, there he is also. So it's not lost on me that I'm gathered with one other. There's two of us gathered in the name of Jesus, and we're both listening for Jesus' voice, and we hear it together. Now, I was just thinking back, as as you think about how do you hear the voice of Jesus, what do you do? We'll talk a little bit about that, but I I was thinking back. I was like, in both of these occurrences, as as people came to me to try to hear the voice of Jesus, I, I was thinking, I, I kind of did what I think Jesus has done and what we've looked at the last few weeks in John 20 and 21. I don't know that I was consciously doing this, but I, I kind of did these things. I asked questions. We talk a lot about how Jesus asked questions. And in John 20 and 21, Jesus initiates his conversation by asking questions. Woman, why are you crying? Or did you catch any fish? So I ask a lot of questions. Asking questions is good. You asking questions in your prayer life is good. Sit with people who are going to ask you questions. Not people who are going to fix your problems. But people who are going to ask you questions so you can get to the deeper issue. Because usually, if people are trying to fix your problems, it's usually a surface issue that will only help you for a day or two. What you need is people who are going to ask, like Jesus, deeper questions to get to the core issue so you can be changed, transformed, and set free forever. So we ask each other questions. Jesus likes to show up in our places of distress and failure and ask us questions. And I also, the second meeting, was well, I asked a lot of questions, but I just had a sense that this person needed to hear some truths. They needed to be blessed by truths about who God says they are. And so I just kind of quoted some Bible verses and some things that I know are true about them in Christ. And so two people, and these are their stories, I won't tell their stories, but they came to hear the voice of Jesus. And I think together, as we prayed together and sat together, we were able to, they were able to hear Jesus' voice. But what was a catastrophe for me, what caught me off guard was how I heard Jesus' voice by meeting with them. The first person, after we had talked for a while, turned and then asked me some questions. Just, Paul, Jeff, tell me about, and just began to ask me a few questions about a very personal thing in my, in my life, in my family life. And they were just asking questions, and, and, and just as they asked questions, I really felt the Holy Spirit move. I really felt like I heard the voice of Jesus saying, this is your path forward. In this relationship where you're struggling to discern what is a way forward in love, this is it. I heard the voice of Jesus. I was so grateful, so grateful. And the other, the other you catastrophe for me was the second meeting we ended our time together, and this person prayed what is a regular, it's a regular Christian prayer, something that we should pray regularly. They confessed their sins, and then they asked Jesus for forgiveness and healing. That should be a regular part of our rhythm and our routine. 
But it was so beautiful, so vulnerable, so honest and authentic. And as a pastor, some of my favorite things are being on the front row of seeing God work. I was just sitting there watching God work. And I actually saw this person just like they were filled with, with life that they didn't have when they came in. And one of the things I've been asking Jesus in the last few weeks is I just want to see you moving. And he is moving in our church. But I often tell Jesus, I cannot do this pastoral work unless I see you. I just can't do it. I need, I need to know you're moving in our church or what are we doing? And so this week I sat and I watched Jesus breathe life, new life into someone. And Jesus, I, I just, the voice is, you see me working. <laughs> Keep at it, Jeff. You can see me working. I'm moving in this church. I had two you catastrophes this week. And I, some of it I, I think is just because I asked on Monday while I was mowing long, Jesus, I want to see you. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I hope those words create a sense of expectation and grow hope and faith in you. That he wants to speak to you, his sheep. One author says this, Jesus is making a point about his voice. He has one. He has a voice and he uses it and he speaks. And his sheep hear it and they know it and they follow him. Now there are ways that you all, I know you already hear the voice of Jesus. You, you read, if you read your Bible, and you should, please read your Bible. Uh, if you read your Bible, you'll, you'll get to know God, you'll, and, and he'll speak to you. You'll find yourself in this story. You'll, you'll learn things that are true about who God is, things that maybe you didn't know true about God. You had God wrong on a few things. Everything you want to know about God is revealed in Jesus. Jesus is everything God wants to say. And you'll learn then about who you are in Christ and then what it means for you. Some of you may be lacking purpose or meaning in your daily life. Well, I promise you, you get into the story and you will find purpose like you never imagined before. So you hear Jesus, you hear him as you read through scriptures. You hear him through speakers you listen to. I was listening to a podcast while I was mowing lawn on Monday and God spoke to me through the speaker. You'll hear God speaking to you through speakers. Maybe through worship as we were singing earlier. Maybe, maybe you heard God speaking to you through worship, through the songs, through the lyrics, just feeling the presence of the Spirit. Maybe you have a burden for someone else and God's laid this name on your heart and you just want to do something to serve them. God is speaking to you. And maybe for many of us, the easiest way to hear the voice of God is to ask for conviction of sin. <laughs> If, you're, if you've been in church for a while, you're probably pretty good at hearing the Holy Spirit convict you of sin. I think the Lord loves to convict us of guilt because he so enjoys removing that heavy yoke and replacing it with his peace. He loves to silence hearts that condemn and demons that accuse. He loves to cleanse our hearts of sin and its ugly effects. But one of the things I've learned just being a Christian walking and also being a pastor and listening is that many of us are really good at hearing the conviction of God and then changing the channel, if you will. <laughs> we hear the conviction of God and then we get so worked up because he's pointing out something that's wrong with us or something we've done wrong or something that's broken inside of us, and then we just stop. But here's what I want you to know. God does want to convict you of sin. He wants to cleanse you of evil in your heart, but he also wants to tell you what he loves about you. <laughs> And so if, you, if you're tuned into God and you hear him convicting you of sin, don't just ask for conviction of sin and move on. Remember, you're cultivating spaces of, of silence and solitude, places to think and meditate on who God is and what he said. And so if you hear conviction of sin, now that you've heard the voice of God and you know it's true, then say, okay, God, that's what displeases you. Now what pleases you? Because many of us need to hear that. Actually, as a pastor, a lot of what I do is try to remind you of what pleases you about God. 
You're already aware of what doesn't please you about God, most of you anyway. <laughs> so I try to remind you, listen, Jesus wants to tell you, he wants to bless you, he wants to encourage you. The abundant life of Jesus is a good life. That's why I look for you catastrophes, sudden, sudden appearances of good. So maybe you're being convicted of sin this week in the way you're treating someone else. But then you're like, okay, I hear the voice of Jesus, but I'm just going to ask. Pastor said, I'm just going to ask, okay, well, what do you like about me? Boom, sudden appearance of good. Jesus wants to tell you. I mean, Jesus went to the cross for you. He loves you. He loves you. He wants to bless you. And I've said this before, we went through Revelation a few years ago, and some people, I tend to think, though there is some debate, that the author of the Gospel of John is also, also the author of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we find out that the beast, the beast gives us a number. I love to contrast that with what we find in John chapter 10 earlier in these verses about Jesus as the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives you a name. So you decide which flock sounds better. Do you want to be in a flock, Jesus is a flock, where you have a good shepherd who cares for you, who lays down his life for you. He gives you a name. He knows you by name. He knows who you can become. He's calling that out of you. Or do you want to be a part of a different flock where the leader's a beast and he gives you a number? He commodifies you. He just wants to use you. He doesn't care about you or what happens to you. He has an agenda, and the degree to which you can serve his agenda, that's all he cares. You're a number. Jesus wants to give you a name. That's the good shepherd. That's what he does. All right, and finally, verses 28 to 30. Let me read them one more time. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them away from me. And my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else, and no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. few things about this. Jesus is saying, if you listen to my voice, you'll know me, I'll know you, you'll follow me. And you'll discover three realities. Deep, lasting life that will never perish, and no one will ever snatch you out of my grip. Uh, one, one author says, we could appropriately paraphrase our passage, I and the Father are one great grip. One great grip. Followers of Jesus, part, people who are under the shepherding of the, of the good shepherd are in one good pair of hands. And there's nothing like the strong but gentle grip of the Father and the Son. There's so much security and safety and assurance in that grip. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Trinity. This, this verse, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. I'm trusting a scholar on this. I did not get out the Greek and add up all the sentences. But, but one author says that John 10, verse 30 is the exact middle of the gospel of John. If you, if you put it out, it's, it's the exact middle of the gospel. And he says it sums up the main message of the whole gospel. Does anyone want to know God the Father? Well, look at Jesus. Does anyone want to know the Father's will? Listen to Jesus. Does anyone want to know the Father's love? Look where Jesus goes. Do you want to live? Then walk with Jesus. This phrase, I and the Father are one. The plural are, the singular one, has, has created much theological discussion through the years. But somehow this God revealed to us in Jesus is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So I want to say a little bit about the Trinity. We do talk about the Trinity from time to time because we have to, to talk about the story of the Bible and the God that is revealed in that story. God is self-giving love. He doesn't just sit up in heaven and wish us well. He gets involved with us in his love for us. He gives himself for us in costly self-sacrifice in Jesus' suffering and death for us. He gives himself to us when he gives us his Holy Spirit as the gift of himself present with us in our lives. God is love means that God gives himself for us and to us. That is God's nature. And I want you to notice something about this story of God's love for the world. You and I can only really talk about the fullness of the love of God by talking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we see God's love in action, we see not only God the Father who cares for us like a parent for his children, we also see God the Son who loves us by coming alongside us as Jesus, as our human brother, one of us, living and dying for us. And we also see God, the Holy Spirit, who comes into our very being, who loves us, as it were, from the inside. God the Father cares for us, nurtures us, watches over us, directs us in his love. God the Son is God in loving solidarity with us. God is Jesus, God with us in our human world, God giving himself for us in his human life and death. And God, the Holy Spirit, is God's love in the depths of our being, sharing God's love with us so that we can love with God's love. It is only because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God can love us in the way he does. Only because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God can be caring, self-sacrificial, and self-giving love. And we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit as we approach Pentecost Sunday. And if you don't know why, you'll understand why as we get there. But in a few weeks, uh, or in a few chapters in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to talk more about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is only going to communicate what he hears. And I like this picture I was reading, and and one author was, was raising the question, well, what does the Spirit hear? And he said, well, what if the Spirit hears the Father and the Son? What if the Holy Spirit is eavesdropping on their conversation? I mean, picture, I want you to picture the Father and the Son talking about you. And I I promise, they're not up there being like, oh, this is everything wrong with this person. No, they are delighting over you. And, And so much of what the Holy Spirit is doing is coming to you and saying, yes, stop, you're so much more, stop with this sin, stop with it, you're, you're living outside of God's design, stop, it. it's just bringing more wreckage, no, no, the Father and the Son, when they see you, they see such beauty, live into that beauty, don't you hear your name as the Father speaks your name, don't you hear it, the good shepherd knows you by name, respond to that name, be that person, the Father delights in you, Jesus went to the cross for you, the Spirit of God is communicating truths about who you are in Christ, not, not the words of the enemy, the lies that are attacking and accusing, no, no, the good news of what Jesus has done for you, who he is, and now who you are if you join his flock, that's what the Spirit is communicating. And if you know that God loves you, as we talk about you catastrophes, I think it will be easier for you to recognize them, to notice them, to pause, because you don't need to be frantic, because you'll be less and less afraid. Jesus is making this glorious, spectacular promise to the sheep that those who hear his voice and recognize this, his voice will be safe forever, eternal life. 
He will look after them, and even death itself, the last great enemy, cannot ultimately harm them. And the reason Jesus is so confident about this is the guarantee of his own unbreakable bond of love and union with the Father. And if the Father holds you, then no one can touch you. One author says, Christian confidence about the future beyond death is not a matter of wishful thinking, a vague general hope, or a temperamental inclination to assume things will turn out all right. It is built firmly on nothing less than the union of Jesus with the Father. Jesus says, I hold you and nothing can snatch you from me. And beyond that, the Father holds you. And nothing will snatch you from the Father's hand. It's a firm grip. It's a good grip. The Father and the Son have a great grip and they will not let you go. So you have nothing to be afraid of. It doesn't mean life will be easy. Life might still be be hard and difficult, but they've got you. So rather than seeing the cosmos as a threatening place that provokes fear... With your good shepherd, with Jesus as your good shepherd going before you and behind you and below you and beside you and the Spirit of God within you, you actually can get to the place where you fear no evil because the good shepherd is with you. In fact, as I was reading about this, several people quoted Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard had observed at one point that if we embrace the reality of God's love and care for us, then we really can see that this present world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Now that's a bit of a radical thing to hear, but if Jesus is your good shepherd and you have nothing to fear because nothing can snatch you out of his hand or the Father's hand, if Jesus really has filled death with his life, then what do you have to be afraid of? Now I know that's a journey we go on as disciples and we have to learn how to trust. I I understand, but I want you to hear, I want you to have hope, I want you to long to be the kind of person who really isn't afraid. Because with Jesus as your good shepherd, this, this world's a perfectly safe place to be. Your soul is not at risk. If you are eternally safe in the care of your good shepherd, you can come to see the world as a safe place. And that's so important for living the kingdom life because it will free you from your fears. You will no longer be afraid you don't have enough and you can live generously. You will no longer be afraid to forgive somebody. And you you don't have to retaliate. You can forgive. You don't have to seek vengeance. You can love someone who wishes you harm because you're not afraid. Because the good shepherd has gone before you and shown you the way to life. The Father is greater than all things. There is no force or being sufficient to sever the relation between the true believer believer and Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Or in Colossians 3, you and I have died in Christ and in Christ our life is hidden. Our life is hidden in Christ with God. Now I was thinking, I'll just wrap up here. I was thinking a little bit, do I have an image or a way of thinking about this visually? And uh, a few weeks ago, Kami, Jay didn't have school, he's 12, and Kami got a group on for this place called Funtopia in Naperville. It's like a, a, a wall climbing area, but they, they've kind of done fun stuff to make the walls really cool. So, so you harness in and you hook to the belay system, and there's a couple that, honestly, the coolest, I think, they look like the side of a building, and so you can be Spider-Man. I just think it's so cool. I'm like, you Spider-Man, it's so cool. Climbing the wall. So I took Jay and three of his friends and I watched them climb. And I was reflecting back. You know, the first thing, you, they have this really great belay system, and, they, and, the, and you hook in, but you got to learn to trust the system. And so I watched these four kids climb, because you get pretty high, and if you weren't belayed in, you could hurt yourself. 
But they would get pretty high, and at first they'd get real scared, and they'd like drop away and ease down and be all afraid. But we were there like three hours by then. They're just jumping off the wall. They got no fears at all. They fall and they're falling, but they know every single time that belay is going to catch them. That's what Jesus is saying. Every single time the Father's got you. You have nothing to be afraid of. And I, and I was then thinking, I was thinking, because there was this one, imagine a bar graph that kind of becomes th- like three-dimensional, just shoots out of the ground. They had this one obstacle where there were just all these like rectangles that you stepped on and you walked and it, they were like painted like buildings and you get to the top and you kind of get to, it's like high up there, like higher than I can reach. Like they're up that high and they're belayed in, but the, you know, they get to the top and they're like King Kong on the top beating their chest, right? King Kong. But then the only way down is to jump. And so the first time they did it, you know, they're belayed in, but the first time they did it, they kind of just kind of lean over, just kind of fall. And there's this little four-year-old girl waiting in line and she'd done it a few times. And she's like, you scaredy boys, what's wrong with you? You got a belay, nothing's going to happen. And I'm like, who is this four-year-old genius? I love this girl, ribbon on these 12-year-old boys. But I was thinking about that this week. I mean, maybe this, this, this gentle, beautiful, cute little four-year-old girl, but you get afraid this week. Why are you afraid? The father's got you. You're in his grip. Do you understand how great a grip that is? You have nothing to be afraid of. It doesn't mean you won't fall but you will not endure anything that will eternally harm you because the Father, the Good Shepherd, is giving you eternal life, and he's got you. Amen? All right, let's pray. I'm going to pray as you bow your heads. I'm going to pray. I'm going to just read. I'm going to ask you to make this your prayer this morning, if you, if you will. If, but it comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. This was written in 1563. And the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? I'm just going to ask if you would pray this with me as your own personal confession. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own life has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, indeed, that all things must serve his will for my salvation." Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of salvation and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Would that be true of us this morning, Jesus? Amen.